out. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, is where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. <clears throat> verses 18 to 25. It was read for us earlier in the service today as we lit the first of the Advent candles. I'll read it for us again this morning uh, before our sermon. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes these words, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's Word. Now, I imagine you are aware by now that this has been an extraordinary year. 2020 has been anything but ordinary for many of us in the room. Started early this year with a global pandemic sweeping the world and making its way here to our shores and eventually taking the lives of a quarter of a million individuals here in America with over 13 million cases now positive cases confirmed. So the global pandemic, and then we had racial unrest and tension that existed and erupted within our cities and across our nation, uh, only to be followed by a very tumultuous election cycle, which divided the nation even more fully. So it's been a year that's been anything other than ordinary. And so as we enter the season of Advent this morning, as we come to light candles and remember the birth of Christ, His first arrival. That's what the word Advent means. It means arrival. And so when we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating Jesus' first arrival, but also looking forward to His second arrival. Because He is coming again, church. So He not only came first, but He will come a second time as well. And as we enter into Advent in this extraordinary year, what I decide to do as we work through this season is rather than turning to kind of traditional Christmas passages around the birth of Christ and the Gospels, we're going to take a look at these four themes of Advent because historically Advent has been about four themes, about hope and love and joy and peace. And so when you see those things painted on boards next to people's entryways in their homes, that's not just something that they picked up at, uh, at, at Hobby Lobby, okay? That's something that historically has been embedded in the life of the church for centuries. These themes of hope and love and joy and peace. And so we want to take a look at those themes this Advent through the lens of what might be considered some untraditional Christmas text, like Romans chapter 8. And we want to start this morning by seeing how Jesus changes everything. That's the, th that's the series that we're taking a look at. He changed his first arrival, his second arrival changes everything. And it, we start this morning by looking at the fact that Jesus changes our future by giving us a solid, bedrock, foundational, everlasting hope. The theme of hope today. Now, I can remember as a child, whenever I was growing up, 
my parents usually didn't wait until we got into the middle of cold and flu season to begin to give us vitamins. In fact, I can remember taking these little Flintstone vitamins. Some of you who are kind of in your 40s, you might remember those Flintstone vitamins as well, okay? So, I mean, those things were delicious, all right? I mean, they were packed full of sugar, uh, but also vitamins, okay? But my parents gave them to us year-round because my parents knew something that I think we need to remember as a church. Uh, they knew that you couldn't wait until cold and flu season to start taking vitamins, as if, right, you get a, a stuffy nose and so you start taking vitamins that day as if they're going to knock it out the next day. No, what you need in your system is the build up of those vitamins over the course of time in order to ward off foreign invaders or infections that might try to invade your body. And listen, the church, as a church, we would do well to remember that we cannot wait until we're in the midst of seasons of suffering to consider a picture of the reality of our future, of what our hope is. Right? We have to continue to come back to it just like a vitamin day in and day out so that whenever suffering, whenever pain, whenever a heartache, whenever hardship invades our life, there is, we've, we've, we've built up hope within our hearts to remember what our future looks like. And so this morning what I want to do as we talk about the theme of hope from Romans chapter 8 is to try to help us get a sharper image a sharper image of what our future reality holds for us. Because if we can get a sharp image of what our future reality holds, then it so affects the way that we live in the present. And if we are to sharpen the image of our future, let me tell you, church, we've got to begin in Romans chapter 8 by recognizing that hope is central central to our salvation. It's not peripheral to our salvation. It's not on the fringes of our salvation. It's not just some add-on or throw-in to our salvation. Like you're checking out at the register at the grocery store and they're like, hey, we're going to throw in a, 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 a car vent uh, air freshener. Okay, It's not that kind of a, a deal. It's central to our salvation. Look what Paul says in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, Paul says that is in this hope we were saved. Now, we're going to get to answering the question of what is this hope, this particular hope that Paul's referring to here. But before we get to what is this hope in a moment, what I want you to see right now is that what Paul is saying is that salvation, our salvation and hope are inseparable. They go hand in hand together. Our salvation exists in the sphere of hope. In other words, what is salvation? We're giving salvation. We are saved in, in the sphere of hope. Then Paul goes on in verse 24 to say that hope is always forward-looking. It's never looking through the rearview mirror. It's always looking through the windshield at what lies out ahead of us. It's always forward-looking, focused on the future, because no one hopes for what they see in the present, right? Because if you have something that you can see, you have something that you can touch, you have something that you can taste, you have something that you can feel, you don't hope for it, you what? Have it. But Paul says in verse 25, what we hope for, we do not see clearly, we have not touched or tasted fully, we have not felt it in its entirety, and so we wait for it with patience. We patiently wait as we hope for what lies out ahead of us in the future. And so when you think about Christianity, what Christianity is, what salvation is, 
Hope is at the very center and heart of our salvation. In fact, any type of or watered-down version of Christianity that focuses only on the practical effects that Christian faith has in the present, here and now. Listen, that's something, but it's not biblical Christianity. Because biblical Christianity is always pointing us to the future. Always saying, look over the hill. Look beyond the horizon. Wait for something that is to come that you do not yet have. Our salvation has always been, is now, and will always forever be infused with hope. Some of you are looking at me kind of funny. Let me see if I can break it down for you, okay? Listen, some of you foodies, okay? I know there's some of you out there who watch the Food Network, all right? And so you're just flipping through the Food Network or online researching recipes, okay? You got apps on your phone, always looking up new recipes. But one of the things that is very popular on the Food Network is that if you're going to make some kind of sauce, is that you infuse it, okay? Now, what is an infusion in the culinary world? Infusion is like taking a flavor from one thing and pressing it in, right? Steeping it like in leaves you would steep in water to make tea, Okay, and so you're going to get that water really hot, put those tea leaves in there, and the taste of the leaves, the flavor of the leaves, is going to be infused into the water. So people make all kinds of sauces and beverages, infusing all kinds of flavors, right, from one thing into another. That's what infusion is. Some of you are like, I already knew that. You don't have to explain it to me because I watched the Food Network all Thanksgiving. That's all I did. Okay? But listen, that's what infusion is. And so you take the flavor of this thing, the herbs or the leaves or the, 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 the flavors, and you infuse it into the other to make sauces that you can smother everything with. And listen, I want to tell you something that hope has all, our salvation's always been infused with hope, with the flavor of hope. It's flavored with hope. Without the flavor of hope, Christianity would be just another self a man-centered religion, the Bible would be another self-help manual on shelves if it didn't point you to a future reality with God in all of His glory, in His presence, basking and being radiated by His majesty. The Bible's always pointing us to that. Apart from that, you can go to Barnes & Noble and buy this great self-help manual called the Bible. That's what it would be apart from hope, church. That's what it would be. And so it's infused with hope. It's central to our salvation. But what is this hope that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8? It's not some abstract blessing or goodness out there, but it's very concrete realities that we are waiting for with patience. And he mentions at least three of them in the text. I'm going to give them to you this morning. The first thing that our hope is flavored with, if you will, is the unveiling of our glory. The unveiling of our glory. In verse 19, Paul personifies the subhuman creation, right? The rocks and trees and animals and rivers and streams and bodies of water. He personifies it and says that subhuman creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we know what eager longing and expectation is, particularly this time of the year, don't we? I can remember as a child, and I'm sure you recognize this in your children, because every time you unload the car this time of the year, their little necks are peeking around the corner trying to see what's coming out in the bags, right? Or every time Amazon makes a delivery at your doorstep, you've got to beat them to the punch to get there in order to snatch up the box and hide it away somewhere so they can't get into what you bought them for Christmas, right? That's eager longing and expectation, right? As you're 
close the door to the guest bedroom and you're wrapping presents, right? They're trying to pick the lock with a screwdriver to peek their head and stretch their neck around and see what you're wrapping up to put under the tree. That's expectation. And Paul says, listen, in the same way that your children would get on their tippy toes to try to see what's on the shelf above where they cannot see to know what's there, that is the disposition of creation as it waits for the revelation of the sons of God. That's what Paul says. Now the word eager longing or expectation is a compound in the Greek. And here's what it comes from. It comes from head and stretch with the prefix away from. So what it's saying is this, that creation has its neck stretched out and its head wrapped around looking, longing, and waiting for what's going to come and be revealed whenever we are, our glory is unveiled. That, that's the, the book. Okay, That's what he's saying creation is waiting for. It's longing to see that, right? It's, and isn't that what we all do when we're waiting for something with bated breath, huh? We kind of put our heads up, kind of stretch our necks out away from our bodies and look around the corner as we wait and expect and long. But what is it that this cre- what subhuman creation is waiting for with this kind of expectation? Paul says it's the revealing of the sons of God. Now, listen, church. What creation's waiting for is the unveiling of the true nature of who we are in Christ. If you, you and I, if you're in Christ, it's waiting for the unveiling of that, the lifting of the curtain. The unve- and this unveiling, listen, it's not only a disclosure of what we have always been, but a dynamic process by which what we are now in our preliminary form that's hidden will be brought to its final stage and put on public display for all of creation to see. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And we'll look at this text next week. But he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. In other words, when Jesus returns, He hasn't appeared yet. What we will be hasn't appeared yet. But when He does appear, we're going to be transformed to be like Him and our glory will be unveiled. And right now, God is in the process of chiseling away everything that would hinder that. Listen, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I remember listening to Pastor Eric Mason in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he gave this illustration one time about an artist, artisan that was in his church who was an incredible sculptor. And this sculptor, he, Eric, Eric, Pastor Mason went up to him one day and said, man, I, I can never do what you do. Right, I can never take that block of stone and make it into something as glorious and as beautiful as what you make it into. And the sculptor looked at Pastor Mason and he said, listen, he said, what you don't understand, what you don't understand, it's, it's real simple, right? Because all I'm, that, 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 that sculpture, that statue's already in there. All I'm doing is cutting away everything that inhibits you from seeing it. And that's the process that God is in right now with us as He forms us into the image of His Son, and one day, listen, the, 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 the curtain will be lifted and all of that glory will be unveiled for all of creation to see. And that's what Paul says. The rocks and the trees and the rivers and the streams are all on their tippy toes waiting to see. The unveiling of our glory. 
It's coming, church. It's coming. Second thing that he says is the freedom of creation. In verses 20 to 22, Paul says that the reason creation longs for this unveiling is because whenever in that day it will be set free from its futility and decay and fulfill all of God's intended purposes for it. Listen, due to the fall, creation is not only like my, you know, some, some physicists say it's winding down, but listen, it's stuck in an unending cycle of conception and birth and growth and maturation to be followed by relentlessly, consistently, and exclusively, there is no other option, by decline, decay, death, and decomposition. It is stuck in this cycle. Birth and death, growth and decline, maturation, decay, decomposition, and the cycle starts all over again. It's bound to futility and bondage and decay and pain because it is under judgment, subject to the curse that God announced at the fall. But it's, and so you might say, well, what, what? But creation still works. Yes, it still works because God has fine-tuned it to do so and balanced it in such a way that it would continue to work. And it's breathtakingly, breathtakingly beautiful in certain moments, isn't it? When you see the sunrise over the horizon in the Colorado Rockies, right? or you see the sunset on the Florida Keys, breathtakingly beautiful, and yet simultaneously in bondage to frustration and disintegration. That's where cre- subhuman creation finds itself right now. Charles Cranfield was a commentator many, many years ago. And this is what Cranfield said. He, he, he kind of, he, 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 he gave an illustration, I think, that's really, really helpful. He says, listen, if you think of it this way, how is creation bound to decay? So if you think of it this way, as a great play that's being played out on the grand stage of the cosmic universe. Think of the universe as a theater. And every piece of God's creation has a part that it plays. Listen to what he says. He says that the whole magnificent theater of the universe, together with all of its splendid properties and the very chorus of subhuman life created for God's glory, is cheated of its true fulfillment. So long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. In other words, as a result of the fall, creation is bound, inanimate creation is bound, and does not fully reflect the glory of God in its irrational capacities because man is not giving praise to God through his rational capacities. And so creation is in bondage to futility and decay. And the Bible says it will not always be this way. It won't. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament had this vision of a new heaven and a new earth that would break forth one day. In Isaiah 65, verses 17 and following, Isaiah writes these words, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, God says, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. 
For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner at a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, no one's going to come in and overthrow that. You're going to enjoy the fruit of your labor. He says, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Thus says the Lord. In other words, there's a day in which all of creation is going to be healed as God brings forth and breaks in and makes everything new. The New Testament authors would speak of it as well in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses verse chapter 3, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2 2 Peter 3 verse 13. All right? All the 2s and 3s are baffling me this morning. 2 Peter 2 2 Peter 3:13. Peter writes of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. In Revelation 21, John sees a new heaven and new earth in which God will dwell with His people and there will be an eradication of all sickness, sin, sorrow, suffering, and separation. All of that comes to an end. See, though creation is now bound to futility, it will one day be free so that there will be no more tsunamis or earthquakes. There will be no more hurricanes or tornadoes. No more floods or fires. No more predation, predators, and no more prey who are consumed. But the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lion will graze on The greatest carnivore on the face of the earth will graze on straw. Creation will be healed and will be free. I look forward to that day. Third, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul writes about Christians having received the spirit of adoption as sons. Earlier up in Romans chapter 8, he says it's by the spirit that we call on God as our Father. It's the spirit that confirms that we are and testifies that we are children of God. And he says if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with who? Christ, church, Christ. And it is Christ who has made all of this possible. All of it. So that 2,000 years ago, whenever Mary conceives and gives birth to a child who was born of a virgin, prior to that, God the Father turns to God the Son in heaven and says, Son, do you remember that plan that we instituted from before the foundations of the world to save all of fallen humanity? And the Son says, yeah, Dad. And He says, it's go time. So the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. She conceives, gives birth to a son. And they would call his name Jesus because he comes to save his people from their sins. And that child would grow in wisdom and stature and knowledge before both man and God. That he would live a perfect sinless life. That he would die in our place of sinner's death bearing in His body the wrath of God against our sin. But God would justify Him and validate His identity as the one and only begotten Son of God by not leaving Him in the grave, but raising Him from the dead. 
and that he would ascend into the right hand of God and that he would take his seat upon the throne, his work of, 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 of atonement done. So he's not like the priest who stand day after day offering sacrifice after sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says, but he's made one sacrifice for sin for all time and then he sat down. He is not standing in heaven. He is seated in heaven upon the throne as the Lamb is ruling and reigning and he's waiting for the Father to turn to him again and say, Son, it's go time. And then he'll return on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a tattoo on his thigh that no one knows the name of other than him and a sword protruding from his mouth and slay all of his enemies with a mere word and inaugurate a reign of peace that will never end. All of this hope is possible because of Jesus with whom we are now co-heirs. Now he goes, Paul says, listen, in, in verse 23, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around this, right? Because we're not familiar with these experiences very much in our life. But all throughout the Bible, we're told that our salvation has this already not yet dynamic to it. So that in verse 23... Although Paul has already said that we are adopted, received the spirit of adoption as sons, we've been made children of God. Yet in verse 23, Paul says right now that we who have the spirit of adoption are waiting eagerly for what? Our adoption as sons. So in what sense are we who have received the spirit of adoption still, we're still groaning inwardly, right? In childbirth, there's a lot of illustrations there that I won't use this morning, uh, but there's a groaning in the pangs of childbirth like creation is currently doing. In what sense have we who've received the spirit of adoption still waiting for our adoption? Let me see if I can illustrate it to you this way. Listen, in every adoption, in the adoption process, Right, it's always a process. Every adoption involves that, from applications to home studies to placement to a final judgment that's rendered in front of a magistrate in your particular county where you're trying to adopt that child. You go before the judge, and he finally makes the child your son or your daughter by rendering a judgment. A judgment. So listen, this child, throughout the home, the home study and the placement, they're already living in your home, aren't they? If you're adopting a child, they're already living in your home. They're sitting at your table. They're eating your food. They're being clothed and cared for like they are your child. But no final judgment has yet been rendered. They're already bonding with you, experiencing your love, tasting of your compassion and correction. But no final judgment has yet been rendered. They're already receiving gifts from you, right? They already have presents under the tree and stockings over the chimney, and they're learning what it means to be a part of your family as they now have extended family who are loving them and caring for them. But no final judgment has yet been rendered. And listen, church, so it is with us. We are already folded into the household of God, the church, feasting on the bread and the cup as we come to the Lord's table, experiencing the tender care and compassion of God as our Father, but no final judgment has yet been rendered. We're not yet standing before the white throne giving an account 
for our lives. We're already experiencing intimacy with the Father through the promised Holy Spirit. We know of His love. We taste of His compassion. We know of His correction. If you are His child, you know of His discipline. Can I get an amen? But no final judgment has yet been rendered. We're not yet standing before the white throne giving an account for our lives. We already have an extended family that is serving us with their gifts. And we're learning what it means to be a part of God's family. And to one another, each other, even as we receive the love of God and are reminded of it day after day after day after day. But no final judgment has yet been rendered. We're not yet before the great white throne to give an account for our lives. Listen, church, there is, all, there is an already and not yet dynamic that is woven through our salvation and our adoption as sons and daughters that Paul says will not be final until the final judgment in which we stand before God to give an account for our lives and have that judgment rendered. And when that judgment is rendered as not guilty, not because of us, not because of me, but because of Christ. For those who have placed their trust in Him and their confidence in Him, that this one who was born of the virgin, that we celebrate every year at this time and remember His first arrival into the world, it's because of Him and our faith in Him and our trust in Him that when we stand before the throne to give an account, the verdict that will be stamped over our lives is not guilty. And in that day, Paul says, you will experience the fullness of your adoption, which is what? The redemption of our bodies. One day, church, there's going to be an exchange of all of our groaning for all of His glory. That day is coming. And listen, the older that I get, ha, the more groaning I know. Okay? Like when you try to bend down and pick something up and you go, oh, right? Every person who knows what it is to experience the pains and aches of aging, right? There's more groaning every time you bend down and pick something up, right? But there's groaning that takes place physically. There's groaning that takes place emotionally. There's all kinds of groaning that takes place psychologically. There's groaning that takes place in our bodies. And Paul says one day, all of that's going to be exchanged for glory. All of it. There'll be no more mutating cell, cells that will cause cancer in our bodies. There'll be no more pandemics that will sweep across the globe. Listen, it will all be eradicated and exchanged for glory. As our bodies are glorified to be like His. So the unveiling of our glory, the freedom of creation and the redemption of our bodies. Now, as we close this morning, I want to give you one piece of application, one exhortation, as we consider all these truths together, that if we're to live with this kind of hope in this extraordinary year, listen, just we have to learn to look at the present through the lens of the future. Look at the present through the lens of the future. In verse 18, Paul says something that I find to be astounding. Astounding. Listen to what he says. He says that when he calculates the intensity of our present sufferings, and when he calculates the intensity of our future glory, 
that what is coming in the future far exceeds and outweighs, surpasses and eclipses what we experience in the present. See, the way Paul uses this word consider in verse 18, he so often uses it to mean to realize from the standpoint of faith, to look upon from the perspective of eternity. And so Paul says, when I consider all the heartaches, when I consider all the hardships from the perspective of eternity, they look small compared to the vast expanse of the future glory that we will enjoy because of Christ. They look small. Now listen. This year I have sat with best friends as they have grieved the loss of their husbands. This year, I have traveled down to South Louisiana to clear out my family's, my childhood home of all of its pictures and memories and seen it demolished to the ground. This year has been an extraordinary year, not only nationally, but personally for many of us. But I want you to hear me clearly this morning, church. That when Paul says this in verse 18, this is why I find it so astounding. Because when Paul says this, I want you to hear this very, very clearly. This truth of the vast expanse of future glory outweighing, eclipsing, and surpassing our present suffering, this truth does not trivialize your trauma. It does not. There is still real heartache. Whenever you see a casket lowered into the ground of someone that you confess sin to, that you loved as a brother, there is still real heartache. There is still real pain when the diagnosis comes back. There is still real loss that we experience. And so this truth does not trivialize any of that. But you still feel the full weight and force of the fallenness of this world whenever sin ravages your life. Whenever the curse is unrelenting and everything seems to collapse around you. This truth does not trivialize any of that. And that's why I find it so astounding. Because if you go over elsewhere and read about Paul's own life and his own experiences of being beaten and shipwrecked and left for dead and stoned, he experienced real pain. He bled real blood. He cried real tears. And this truth does not trivialize any of that. You still feel the full weight of it. But what this truth must mean then is that despite how heavy and dense all of the pain of this life is, that the density of glory is bigger. That's why it's so astounding that when compared to the intensity of your heartache, the intensity of glory is bigger and more 
majestic. It's more beautiful than the brokenness that you can you experience here. Despite the depth of that brokenness, the height of beauty is not worth comparing, Paul says. And that does nothing to diminish the real depth of brokenness. But that must mean that the beauty of glory is bigger. It's astounding. That's why Paul says, for I consider. So church, if you're going to live with the kind of hope that Paul writes about in these verses, that is ours in Christ, you have to learn to look at the present realities of your pain and your suffering and your heartache through the lens of the future glory that is coming. And only then are you able to wake up the next day. The day after the day that you would not wish on your worst enemy. The day after the day that you never planned for. The day after the day that you never envisioned for your future. The day after that day and you wake up the next day and you put your feet forward in faith knowing that despite how deeply this hurts today, there's a healing that's coming tomorrow. They will make the pain today feel so small compared to the glory that's on the horizon. Look at the present the lens of the future. Take these verses and radiate your heart with this hope, this advent. Let me pray for us. We would do that very thing. Father, we pray for the grace this morning to radiate our hearts with the hope in, that we have in Christ. The hope that is the flavor of our salvation, that our salvation would not be what it is apart from Hope. Hope of the unveiling of our glory that all of the things that would hinder us and the sin that was so easily entangled us is now being chiseled away to be unveiled one day as we are transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And that on that day, all of creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and futility and that we will experience the healing and redemption, full and final adoption as your sons and daughters, as our bodies are transformed. No longer to know what sickness and suffering are. So Father, today, in this day, in our present reality, help us to radiate our hearts with that hope, to look at the future, through the, or look at the present through the lens of that future, to know that the glory that's coming is bigger, it's better, it's more satisfying. And it will cause all of our suffering that is so intense now, that is not trivialized by this truth, it will cause all of that suffering to appear small and seemingly insignificant in the light of the future glory that will be revealed. Father, we don't know what it will all look like. 
but we know it will all be glorious. We don't know everything that we're going to experience, but we know there is so much more that awaits us upon the second advent of your Son. That while we know your loving presence with us today, there is a deeper relationship with you that we will enjoy for all of eternity that we cannot fathom today. So Father, whether it be miscarriages, stillbirths, or as Isaiah speaks about an infant who lives but a few days. May the future glory at the return of Christ overshadow those and give us real hope in the midst of our real hurt. Whether it be separation and isolation and loneliness, May real hope overshadow our real hurt today. Whether it be death and disease and destruction, may our real hope overshadow our real hurt today. thank you, our Father, that all of this is not only true, but can be real for us because of your Son, our co-heir, and because of your Holy Spirit who assures us if we are in Christ of our sonship now and our full salvation in the future. May your spirit have his way in us today. Do his work in us today. Minister to our souls today, pointing us to Christ and Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen.